The podcast that you are about to hear is not a podcast that I was originally intending on recording. But as I mentioned in the last episode of this podcast on Esther, Daniel, and Exile in Digital Babylon, I was open to criticism and pushback and feedback on the ideas of that episode. And my very good friend, and technically my boss, Jacob Cates, listened to that episode and had some criticisms and some suggestions that I thought were worth discussing. And so we recorded a conversation about them. Now, I don't like to do podcast episodes that require you to go back and listen to a lot of stuff beforehand in order to make sense of current episodes. And yet, while you'll be able to listen to this conversation and still track along, you're definitely going to get the most mileage out of this episode if you go back and listen to the previous episode. I know, that episode was really long, and I did what I could to break it down into bite-sized parts if you can't listen to the whole thing all at once, but you're definitely going to get more out of this conversation if you are familiar with that episode, and so if you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to do that, but just know that you can listen to this episode and hopefully still find it very edifying and helpful. And if you'll stick around for the end of the podcast, I have some exciting announcements about not just the next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, but about the future of Breaking the Digital Spell as a podcast and how you can get involved in supporting it. So you have put me in the very unusual position of somehow becoming the most nihilistic person in the room when it comes to social media, far surpassing even my most critical moments. I don't know how you did it, but you've put me in this very strange spot of having to actually speak positively about social media, which is not something I'm used to doing. Yeah, um, that's quite an accomplishment. I will... Uh... I will. Can we put that on my headstone? Like when I eventually kick the bucket, <laughs> most nihilistic social media user ever. I mean, you did come up with two very compelling and convincing laws that try to govern. While I was while I was developing this episode and writing out this massive framework for Digital Babylon, you got the work done in a fraction of the time with your two. Uh, axioms of social yeah. media. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think for context, it's important to know a couple things. One, I was extraordinarily tired. I'd been up really, really that morning, and I just finished like a nine-mile run in uh, Paladar Canyon, and so pretty, pretty wiped out, uh, kind of surly, <laughs> and uh, and I don't even remember what what it what got started. I don't remember either. It was on my way back from from the canyon, getting struck in traffic because there were some some weird things going on on the highway that day. There was some conversation happening, which was almost certainly violating several moving laws. As I was uh, responding to this text uh, that pertained to social media, and I I issued my pithy uh, declaration that all social media posts should come with a Surgeon General warning. Nobody cares, and the ones who do hate you for it. I couldn't find it, and I looked super hard for it, but there was somebody who actually made a mock-up of a Surgeon General's warning and affixed it to the Facebook homepage. Um, it didn't say, It didn't have... Those those two axioms, but it was you know the giant obnoxious yeah. uh, surgeon general warnings like cigarette warning labels, 
on the Facebook homepage, <laughs> and it was super funny. And I looked for it on I looked for it on Twitter because that's where I saw it, but I couldn't find it. But long story short, you know, I put out uh, this episode on Digital Babylon. You took uh, the very generous amount of time it took out of your time to listen to it, and you had some objections that you raised to me that I yeah. thought were worth uh, discussing because I thought they were. I think they were objections worth talking about. So uh, go ahead and give your, uh, go ahead and raise your, your grievances. Well, I, I will raise my grievances, but um, before uh, I do that, I think there are a couple of things that we agree on, um, and, and I think those are worth saying. You and I are both deeply skeptical about social media. We just will approach this problem in slightly different ways. We're, we're both skeptical of the actual companies involved. We're skeptical of the way people use it. And and for us, I think that that uh, at least is a common, common point of contention. Neither of us believe that social media is an unmitigated good. Absolutely. Um, so we agree on that. Secondly, I agree full-heartedly that if people are going to be involved in the use of social media, that we have to do a better job. And this is actually something that I'm really excited about for, for some of the stuff you're doing, both with breaking the digital spell, but also potentially some other projects you're working on that there has to be some serious work done on how particularly Christians, and I say that as a, as a pastor, um, but particularly Christians engage in the realm and world of social media. If they're going to be there, they need to do that with as much wisdom as absolutely possible. My real uh, bugaboo, I guess, is in assessing the value of social media. I, I find myself asking the question of, should we be there at all? Is that a necessary space for the individual to be uh -huh. in? Now, I, I fully will you know, acknowledge that brands and, and people who are selling things or people who are trying to put out a message, like they are almost sort of forced to be there by the fact that other people's eyeballs are there. Right. But the average individual, Joe Schmo, on the street, does he need a Twitter account? Does he need a Facebook account or even an Instagram account? Does, you know, my 16-year-old daughter, um, my my oldest is nine now, but eventually she'll be 16. I was about 16. to say, you have a 16-year-old daughter? I don't, but eventually she'll be 16. Does she need a Facebook account or an Instagram account? And mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I believe that she does. Now, uh, I, I think there are a couple problems uh, with the digital Babylon analogy that I want to push back on. And then I want to offer two other analogies that I think sort of better. Well, one, one, is, uh, one is a totally different analogy. Another, I think, tweaks your, your core analogy. Uh -huh. But I, I, I do think there's a little bit of a problem with the analogy of digital Babylon, in part because it gives away too much. So rather than saying that social media is a culture that we necessarily inhabit, that we have to live in, much like Babylon was for uh, Jewish exiles or uh, the Roman Empire was for Christians living, as Peter says, in, in exile, or our overarching culture, uh -huh. uh, our, our cosmos, to use John's language, that we live in, uh, we're giving away too much when we say, Social media is our culture. Uh, I think Mark Zuckerberg would love that to be true. I think Jack Dorsey <laughs> would love that to be true. But I don't know that we have to concede the point, so to speak. Uh, I, I do think it's a little bit of a categorical mistake to claim that social media is a culture unto itself. It certainly has aspects of culture filtering through it. But uh -huh. I think it's an artifact of culture 
that both affects the broader culture it lives in, mostly by acting as an accelerant to things that are occurring in culture already, Mm -hmm. uh, but it is primarily an affect of a culture that has uh, uh, distinctive values. Namely, um, I'm thinking of the, the idea of the psychologized cell for the therapeutic man or this culture of expressive individualism. Right. That a lot of, uh, a lot of technology is derived from something underlying the culture itself mm-hmm. and then serves to amplify it. And I think only our culture could have produced something like social media. Yeah. So on that, before we get into the two analogies that, that you you have, I think I would say a couple of things to that. One, I think my primary goal for this episode was to look in Scripture and see what in Scripture, if there is anything in Scripture, that may be able to exist as a framework existing among other frameworks for understanding social mm-hmm. media that presently exist. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the addictive psychology or the addictive design framework. Yeah. Um, we have the echo chamber culture framework. And there's a lot of truth and there's a lot right. of, of really good insight into those frameworks. But those are fundamentally extra biblical frameworks. And what I was looking for was, yeah. is there anything in scripture that may serve as a distinctly Christian view yeah. to engage yeah, with yeah. social media? Yeah. I don't know. It's tough because I don't know if I would agree that social media is the sum of culture. I, I don't think that certainly is true or is the totality of culture. And yeah. yet when I try to think of examples where social media doesn't impact it or influence it or connect to it in some way. I have a really hard time thinking of anything concrete. Sure. It definitely has, I think, as uh, as technologies go, an outweighed influence in culture, in part because it's a means of communication. And Uh I think you'd have to look back to uh, the invention of movable type, or Uh at least the importation of movable type into Europe through the Gutenberg press to find something quite as revolutionary in the way that we talk to each other. Uh, sure. The Absolutely. Television obviously um, is another great example of that um, or the telegraph. But the difference is that those other mediums are, they lack the, uh, shall we say efficiency of social media Sure. with type or uh, television. You have to have, capital or resources in order to purchase movable type, which, you know, was a great catalyst for reformation and revolution throughout Europe and throughout the United States. Uh, Right. uh, Colonial America had a really high literacy rate and people loved to read. And uh, and, and in part, one of the the interesting things about the pre-revolutionary colonies was how frequently people would publish their uh, their political thoughts. No, Postman writes all about that a lot in Amusing yeah. Ourselves to Death, that prior to the advent of television, the way that America understood itself was through the media yeah. of the printed yeah. word. Well, that's why, that's why colonists became so angry that paper was being taxed by uh, the mm-hmm. British Empire. Um, it was, a, it was a <laughs> if that leads them to revolution, gosh, what would now, right? Um, but th- you still had to be able to have a printing press, 
you had to spend time assembling the letters in the the right format. And typically, these are long-form documents. Uh, Thomas Paine's Common Sense comes to mind as an example of this, but there are there are many, many thousands of others. Television's uh, much more capital intensive, and so it actually ends up being a bit more of a gatekeeping yes, uh, for sure. uh, medium, um, you know, UHF being what it is uh, or what it was, right? Uh, notwithstanding, but by and large, very gatekeeped yes. um, and, and capital intensive, although very efficient for disseminating information, maybe even more efficient than print, presuming you could engage in that space in some way. Mm-hmm. Social media is different in that everybody has access to it constantly mm-hmm. in their pocket. That's unfathomable. Even when even when Facebook first came out, Austin, uh, how old were you when Facebook first dropped or f- first became a thing? I believe Facebook, if I remember right, really became available to people. I think the I think the moment when they dropped the uh, like college connection requirement for signing up. Well, mm. I think it was like 15 okay, or so. Uh, I was 18 when I first got a Facebook account uh, in 2006. They still had the college requirement. And to access my Facebook account, I had to make my way to the library <laughs> at West Texas A&M University. <laughs> and, uh, and so there was even then some difficulty accessing it. You know, there were little points of resistance. They weren't great, but they were there. But the real revolution was when it became a phone app. That's when that's when yes. things really begin to change because you can constantly access Facebook no matter where you're at or what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And and Jean Twenge's iGen, like the crux of her a lot of her research is on is in 2012 when Facebook yep. launched on mobile devices and even in uh, recent exposés on Facebook, like uh, Cecilia King and Shira Frankel's and Ugly Truth, they point to, the, to 2012 as being like the make or break year for, for Facebook for that very reason. Yeah. Uh, that was the point that if Facebook would have failed, it would have been when they tried to transition to mobile, which, as we know, they pulled off very well. <laughs> yeah, they, they did. And, and the acquisition of Instagram uh, sped that, that process up. Um, I think Instagram may have been mobile native. I think it started it as a mobile platform. It's and even still to this day, its desktop functionality is basically non-existent. It's the most frustrating platform for me as a yeah. desktop-driven social media manager to use. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and that's intentional, I think, on their part. Um, but you, but you would say if I think if you're if I'm understanding you right that because because the degree of buy-in and because the degree involved necessary to get in on social media is so is so low, is so commonplace, and so not capital intensive mm-hmm. in any way, shape, yeah, or form, yeah. um, that to say that it's the totality of culture is not not the best way to go about it because it's everyone's every it affects everyone the same. Yeah, it, well, it's it's it is infectious and it's widespread, it's ubiquitous, but it's not the totality of culture because there is actually a real world happening apart from from your social media life. And, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've actually been talking a lot about this opportunity to to do this podcast with you and actually talk about our, our kind of discussion with quite a few people. And I've been surprised, you know, some people uh, will say things like I have an Instagram or I have a Facebook, but I really only use it for the grandkids. Mm -hmm. They use it very sparingly, or at least according to them, they use it very sparingly. I haven't checked. Um, But I've had several people say, Oh yeah, I just don't have a Facebook. 
I don't have a Instagram. Mm-hmm. And so I have been, I have been a little bit surprised by that. And as a sort of a recent devotee to the, uh, the non, uh, social media life do find it in some ways like freeing and, and liberating to actually kind of walk outside a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and have to have conversations where I don't, I don't have much pre-context for the conversation that I've learned because I saw it on somebody's Instagram page. Right. But I'm asking them genuinely, how are you doing? What are you up to? Like, what is going on? And I'm learning about it for the first time with that person. Right. I mean, if I could just say one thing to that, though, I think that I think there's two things. One, maybe I could have worded this better in the episode, but I think the general thrust of ministry leaders and of Christians ought to be to encourage one another to get off if they're able to, to Mm. divest themselves of that if they have the option to. I think a lot of the thrust of this episode, which again, maybe I could have made that more explicit, was what do the people who maybe can't totally get away as much as they want to do? Yeah. And the other thing, too, with the totality of culture is that I think that's something for you and I, as being millennials, we still have memory and connection to a culture and a world that existed before the internet. We're the last generation to remember a life before we had the internet in our homes. Yeah, I remember in 1996 when my my parents bought an Acer desktop and and we finally had internet access. Yeah. That changed... You know, yeah, everything. Yeah, same. I remember when my dad ordered a Dell PC and we got internet on it and uh, you know played a bunch of Star Trek computer games on it as a as a kid. But I remember a life before that. I remember right. having to go outside all the time and play in the street with my friends and, and and play in the yard and stuff. But I think for Gen Z and for younger generations, yeah, they don't have as much of a sense of cultures outside of what comes to them through social yeah. media. You know, we have, we in older generations have a sense of music culture, of film culture, of uh, reading culture to an extent. Yeah. And not to say that younger, younger generations don't either, but that's all filtered in and through yeah. social media. And so for them, and I know you don't like her and I certainly don't endorse everything she does either, but one of the things that Taylor Lorenz does really well is really bring out that yeah. for the younger generations, pop culture and social media is not a Venn diagram. It's a circle. Yeah. Like they, yeah. those have become synonymous with each yeah. other. Uh, and I am deeply suspicious that that is anything approaching a good thing. Um, I, I am I, too. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying it's a good I, thing. I think if, I think if the alcoholic is, uh, if he's, constantly staring at the bottom of the bottle and that becomes the lens through which he sees the world or the prism yes through which he sees the world you you have to do something differently and if an entire generation has allowed tiktok allowed snapchat is that still a thing snapchat oh yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're doing great right now um you know if they, if they uh if they allow those things the Youngs are not on Nextdoor, I believe. That's the social no. media platform the Youngs are not on. But no. if, they, if they allow those things to become that Venn diagram, I think they've accomplished something very destructive and unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And here's, here's my – I don't know that I have much of a prescription of how to do social media well. And I'm, I, I, I think that's actually something where you have more to say than I do. But my, my real concern is if I'm thinking about the millennials that I am raising – I have one, or sorry, not a millennial, uh, not millennials, Gen, Gen Zers. Gen Zers. I think technically my 
my oldest is a Gen Zer, and my your youngest too should be whatever comes after. I them. think it's I think they call it Alpha. Is that what it's called at the moment? Until something better comes up. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes they call Gen Zers Zoomers too. Mine, like, I have a real strong concern that I don't actually want them to inhabit that space in the same way. Mm-hmm. They are probably closer to digital natives than I would like them to be um, through exposure to things like uh, an Amazon uh, Echo mm-hmm. um, and a Nintendo Switch. Sure. Uh, my nine-year-old can now um, use Word uh, at a at a fairly rudimentary level, um, she is writing a novel. Oh, really? Yeah, she I is. Would love to read it when yeah, she's done. I, I, w- I would too. Um, but um, as much as possible, and where where able, I am generally resistant to them being digital natives. In part because you can learn almost everything you need to know when you need to learn it. Right. Whether it's file management or word processing or how to use an Excel spreadsheet, things that that can produce, you know, real value in the real world or, or be useful tools for those ends. And then social media is so frictionless that when, you know, should they go into advertising, should they go into um, some sort of message broadcast of, of some sort, one, I hope they have something useful to say, but, but two, it's not going to be impossible for them to learn that either. They, they'll sure. be able to learn it. And sure. it might actually be better for them to learn it not as digital natives, but as people who are somewhat outsiders to the medium like yourself and can yeah. think critically about the medium. And so I, 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 I would say this to parents um, of kids my age. Don't give your kid a smartphone. Uh, yeah. don't, don't let your kid have a, a TikTok. Don't let them have frictionless access into the digital world. One, there are too many pitfalls there. And I know saying this, I now sound like, you know, reactionary parents from the eighties who were like worried about ACDC, but, but we have, unlike then we have unbelievable concrete evidence of the tangible harm. This does not only to our children, but even to grown adults. One of the things that I most appreciate about Jean Twenge's research is that she makes very clear that even though her research focuses on iGen or Gen Z or whatever you want to call it, that the implications of her research affect full-grown adults, oh, yeah. too, and that there's a lot of overlap in their effects. Yeah. And so I think even though this episode was a very generally pro-social media episode in a lot of ways, my still fundamental conviction remains that being in exile is not the ideal state. That being in exile in digital Babylon, having to be connected to social media in some way is not the ideal state of affairs. It's how do you navigate being in those uh, non-ideal state? The best place to be is uh, life in the land, the the life in the land distinction within digital Babylon, that you have those who are in exile on social media, and you you have those like yourself who are living life in the land. They're not, they didn't get carted off to Babylon. Um, That's still the ideal. That's still the direction that people should move to and churches should, create ways and incentives to move people yeah. in that direction. But and it can't fully it's not going it's never going to be a 100% successful return. Right. Right. Now the 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 I think the one thing I would say to that is, you know, life in exile is not a choice. Um it's a necessary reality. And when we say, you know, even believers live in exile, we're talking about our lives in the broader world as Christians. You know, we live in exile currently mm-hmm. in the broader culture that we live in. 
with all of its pangs and its its foils and its um, resistance to God uh, and its hatred of the gospel. Um, we live in that environment now already, and and we don't get to leave. You know, conscience doth make cowards of us all. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hope. Uh, but social media is not a necessary exile. I think in a lot of ways it's self-imposed. Certainly can be. And I do think there is a discussion worth having about why do you have to be on social media? Yeah. I still maintain, and I still maintain fully that for some people like myself, being on social media is necessary for our jobs. And whose fault is that? Mine, I think. <laughs> I believe I'm the one who condemned you to the the, the Facebook minds. Um, I mean, I did. I am the one who said I would do it. So, I mean, <laughs> is my fault. Um, but whether for one reason or another, there are people who do not necessarily have the ability to leave without significant consequences in some way. I do think for a lot of people, and the challenge for Christians will be convincing yeah. these people that. Maybe the reasons you have for staying on social media are not good reasons. Maybe they are reasons that can be better met or needs that could be better served in other ways. So it's not to say that all participation in social media is a choice. I do think for a lot of people it certainly is, but I also think for a good number of people it's not. And from my own background and from my own perspective, I interact with a lot of those people where uh, social media, for better or worse, is a necessary tool in their lives. Um, And that's something that... I wish were different, but part of the reason why I did this episode the way that I did yeah. it was for those of us who maybe don't have that choice and who feel that desire to get out, what does scripture offer in terms of helping us make the best of where we're at? And I yeah. think the I think the exile in Babylon framework in, in Jeremiah and Esther and Daniel is really the most helpful material we have for that. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're locked into that space, and, and uh, you know we've talked about that a fair bit. Like if you're economically dependent on the space for whatever reason, that is that is harder to leave. I think the bulk of us, you know, Joe Schmo on the street, Grandma who's on next door too much. You know, most of us don't actually need to inhabit the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only reason f- poor folks like you are here is because we are there <laughs> with yeah. our with our eyeballs and our clicks. And yeah, that's a, that's a challenge, and I, I think that's so that that would maybe be a good time to actually give you my my first analogy. Yeah, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and cover yeah. that. So, uh, my first analogy is actually uh, if our broader culture is something approximating Las Vegas, uh, Sin City, you know, mm-hmm. then what social media is is a casino. Okay. Now, culture at large in Vegas is by definition impacted. You, when you think of Las Vegas, you think of casinos, right? Much of the 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 money brought into Vegas is brought in by casinos, rather whether it's uh, through conventions, hotels, the actual gambling itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the laws of the state of Nevada are warped around casino gambling. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of this is some historical reasons too. That they, they, as a state, had a weirdly libertarian bent um, being formed in the Civil War. Uh, by a largely um, mining community that also kind of wanted nobody to mess with them and let them do whatever the heck they wanted, mm-hmm. and were very very far away from the centers of power. So they, they, they as a culture had a do what you want mindset, um, and some of that became internalized over the years and was taken advantage of to build you know what we think of as these very large you know revenue resources. 
Uh, anyway, enough history lesson. You can live in Vegas and never go to a casino. It's, it is possible. Right. Now, if I had to guess, 95% of the adult population in Vegas, if not 100, has been to a casino. Uh, many, many people have. Now, many people depend on those casinos for revenue. Sure. Uh, they, they work there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a hotelier. They're a, um, uh, a table manager. They're whatever. Um, it's very hard to imagine a situation in Vegas where you're not at least at some level impacted by a casino. But it's not necessary that you go there. And I, I use this illustration uh, fairly self-consciously because many social media platforms have actually taken their cue from the gambling industry with the way they right. they structure their apps. They understand that you will psychologically respond uh, to use uh, use something called Newport put points out in his book, Digital Minimalism, they understand that you will respond better mm-hmm. to certain colors being used for the notification that you have received a comment or a share or a like uh, than you will to others. That's why Facebook uses red, even though their palette, their color palette is uh, blue. Right. Um, and they, they actually used blue for their notifications for a bit, but... It didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. Red got more eyeballs. Red got more clicks. And what we're doing as a practical art, in some sense, when we use social media for the most of us, is we're playing the slots. Mm-hmm. We go in and we put our comment out there, or maybe our photo. Those of us who are educated in the social media arts, so to speak, know these sorts of comments, these sorts of photos will attract more likes or more shares. Mm-hmm. And the ones that attract the most likes and the most shares are also the worst in some sense. They are yes. uh, the most needy or they are the most angry. They may get likes or shares that are cheap shows of sympathy. Mm-hmm. They may get likes and shares that are filled with rage and anger, maybe because they've purposely stoked it. Mm-hmm. You know, not always. But when we go there, we're, we're, we're playing the slots. And most of the time, we get nothing or we get very little. You know, when you yeah. play the slots, most of your roles... You know, there's there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of reward there for the risk, but mm-hmm. occasionally you hit jackpot. Yeah. And unfortunately, on social media, jackpot can it can mean yeah, you get a lot of likes and you get a lot of shares, and it can feel very positive, but it's also very thin and it will evaporate. But unfortunately, sometimes jackpot can also mean somebody is texting your boss and trying to get you fired, or mm-hmm. you know, texting a whole bunch of people saying your Facebook post is the reason that they're leaving your church. Yeah. And when we, you know, perhaps do a risk assessment, we find that the risk is not in the reward. Yeah. Uh, if I recall that line from Annihilation correctly, um, we we don't think that jackpot is worth winning. I don't sure. think that jackpot is worth winning. I don't want it, and it's not fun. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. So there's there's a lot there, and I here's the thing. I agree with the vast majority of that. I do think that addictive design is a very important piece of this total picture. But one of my problems with the discourse around addictive design, and I don't think you're necessarily making these claims, but I may be hearing echoes of them in what you're saying, is that one of the things that a lot of the proponents of addictive design, you know, the guys like Tristan Harris, the Center for Humane Technology, Mm -hmm. the social dilemma was basically an argument for addictive design as being the dominant framework to understand social media. Mm -hmm. And 
there's a lot there that's true. Everything about the the Facebook like button, the color palettes, yeah. all of those things are very well documented and very true, and they do have a place somewhere in the picture. My problem with the discourse surrounding it, though, is that a lot of the motivations or needs or impulses for social media have all kind of become collapsed into this framework of addictive psychology to where the answer to everything is Facebook made me do it. Look at what these nigh-omnipotent yeah. tech overlords yeah, caused right. me to say. I hear you and I sympathize because I, I don't think we should give away our moral agency in that way. Yes. I, I do think there's something about ourselves that actually is, is wrought for this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to go back to that earlier phrase, when we when we pull the plenty slots, that's what the game we're playing is nobody cares and those who do hate me for it. That's that's the, the, the sort of reward scenario. And so... One of the effects of that, and I'm going to address your bigger point here in a second, but one of the effects of that is this rise in uh, depression among teenage girls. Because if they're not receiving the attention they want, you know, for me, if I post something and I didn't get a big response, I absolutely did not care. Right. It was perfectly fine. Why? uh, I had other friends and I had other community IRL. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff I posted on, on social media that was more innocuous was like, stuff I was doing with a friend or uh, stuff I talked about with other people otherwhere. And I didn't get a lot of likes or response to it. And that was, that was a hundred percent okay because I was actually just with other people and mm-hmm. that community, but that's not always true. And this may be to your earlier point. That's not always true for, you know, middle school, high school girls who are on Absolutely. social media because yeah. they feel one, they're in a already insanely tribal context. My, my uh, seven year old daughter's, really finding this out that kids and especially girls are super tribal and two there's not a lot of opportunity for that that mutual affirmation and encouragement in the context of say a uh, public school yeah that large environment you're, you're sort of moving along faceless in a crowd and when you go to social media and you're not getting the likes and shares and comments that you have come to try to receive in those places you're really really going to feel the weight of that but then what happens is the flip side of that somebody gets really angry with you because maybe they see a social media post where you're with these friends. Why aren't you with me? Why aren't you with my other right. friends? Or you have transgressed some unspoken code regarding how we do things at the school among this this pure. And opening yourself up to a lot of unwarranted criticism from other people who have, you know, not fully formed brains. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I think maybe one of the answers to that is that we do need real community. We need IRL community, you know. Yes. Uh, Christian parents need to be taking their daughters to church and not letting, letting them be with other believers who mm-hmm. are also being discipled to encourage one another, not simply tear one another down. Right. I think, too— one of the things that the addictive design framework doesn't explain very well, and I think you you touched on really well just a bit ago, is that what do people do when they don't get the affirmation that they come to social media to look yeah. for? And addictive design reduces this need to being simply a addictive reinforcement cycle. And again, I'm not saying that's not yeah, involved yeah. somehow, but I think a better framework, one that the next you know, the next three episodes of this podcast after this one are going to focus on comes from a researcher named Chris Bale in a book that he recently published called Breaking the Social Media yeah. Prism, where he argues that the addictive design framework, while certainly true and certainly fits into the picture yeah. somehow, 
doesn't fully capture what's driving our desire to be liked and to be affirmed on social media. And that instead of being a tool for information, social media is a social tool where we present different, where we present a version of ourselves, we present it and get feedback and we revise our identity of ourselves based on our feedback. And it also distorts our identities of each other. So when we post something on social media that doesn't uh, hit the jackpot, so to speak, it could be because we just aren't seeing what we want to see in terms of our identity being reflected back to us the way that we want to. You have a strong enough identity to where if you post something on social media and no one likes it, you don't care because you're not, you don't need that identity from social media. Whereas there are a lot of people who don't have that and are looking to social media to fill that need. So the casino framework, I'm actually more interested in like the addictive psychology framework, not from the biological standpoint, but from the spiritual one. And I think the addictive design framework, if I were to incorporate that into the the digital Babylon framework somehow, would maybe be instead an example of digital Babylon as a type of principality and power. Mm -hmm. That one of the spiritual side effects of digital Babylon manifests itself in this addictive design, in this addictive ecology that keeps us physiologically and spiritually locked into this right. cycle. You know, it's, it, it isn't all pure addiction. You know, even casinos would acknowledge that. They're going to have a lot of clientele who are not gambling addicts. Mm-hmm. But they will work their hardest to obscure how much time you're spending there. Oh, to yeah, absolutely. make it difficult to find the exit and things like that. Really what they're looking for is uh, the whale. You know, yes. they're looking for the big, the big risk taker. The one with a lot of money to lose. Yeah, or uh, the stupidity to to borrow that money to lose that too, as uh, Norm Macdonald says, the uh, uh, the fat man with the bald head, I believe, uh, who lives out at the Salton Sea. His uh, conversation in his book about what it is that gambling addicts actually like, what they actually are craving for, in his uh, book based on a true story, which is mostly not at all based on a true story, but it has a few sincere moments. And one of them is, is his conversation on what it is a gambler likes. The, he, he says the gamblers don't like to win, certainly don't like to lose. They like that moment when they've cast the dice before they've landed. What they're addicted to is hope. Fascinating. And sometimes I think, I think us logging in that moment right before we see you know, how, how many, many likes, how many shares, how many, how many that, that moment's just yeah. so sweet. And that's why it loads late. That is why it loads late because it, it then starts, it does front load the content first before it does load yeah. notifications so that you have something to look at before you get what you actually came for. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's look at, let's look at your second, right. let's yeah. look at your second, yeah. uh, your second analogy that, so, that you think is, is a better one. So this actually plays on your, your analogy. And, uh, I don't think your analogy is entirely off base. But if we look at our greater culture as Babylon and social media as a microcosm uh, rather than, you know, the, the neat summary of mm-hmm. culture, then what I would think of is, is social media as a ziggurat, that it is a point of worship and liturgy within the broader culture that mm-hmm. reflects the broader culture. You know, you might go up on a ziggurat to worship Marduk. Asher, I guess, is 
Sumerian, but to, you know, to yeah, appe- I'm not real brushed up on my Babylonian deities. That's okay, but you know, to offer some sacrifice to the gods as part of your your pagan religion. But Babylonian culture also has some of its own unique flavors that make it a little bit different from, say, Canaanite culture, which is a little bit downstream. It's not purely like uh, uh, what we might think of as uh, pagan in the sense of, of like some Nordic nature cult, um, but you would you would um, go to try to appease uh, some deity who might bring you uh, water for your crops or who might um, bestow upon you wealth, who might um, give to you some some material need that you needed to make it through another day, another month, another year, right? Be it a moon yeah. god, be it a, a rain god, a sun god, a god that would keep pestilence away from your kids, you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And that reflected a culture that, um, to use Philip Reeves' analogy, was was first world mm-hmm. um, that uh, that was inhabited by um, these spirits who held our fates in our hands. <clears throat> but we don't live in in that world anymore. We live in a uh, third world culture, um, which to Philip Reeves means that we live in a culture of the psychologized man or the mm-hmm. therapeutic self. Right. Our religion, our faith if we are to talk about a broader culture, is ourselves. We worship ourselves. We worship our identity. That becomes the most important thing about us, how we identify. And one aspect of that is the fact that sexual identity or gender identity is an open conversation. There's now some questioning of the assumption of that because identity is so important. And how identity is determined isn't connected to my economics it's not connected to my religion it's not connected to my family or clan or tribal association it's connected to uh, a framework that i have built for myself in my own mind right and social media is the ur manifestation of that um yeah we go to Facebook, we go to Instagram, we go to Twitter, we go to Nextdoor sometimes, uh, you know, we go to TikTok, we go to, um, I go to, I, I still use Goodreads, you know, to some extent we can mm-hmm. do this in Goodreads. We go to those places to communicate our identity and to have it reaffirmed. Yes. And we want, we expect other people to, if they're not going to worship at our altar, we expect them at least not to challenge the prerogatives of our own personal religion and conceit of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the real heretics in this scheme, the, the, the heterodox are those that would cause us to challenge our preconceptions. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think, I think Bale is really helpful. And your discussion of Bale, it was really helpful. And by Bale, I, I mean B-A-I-L, not B-A-A-L. Ah, yes, very, very, very good <laughs> distinction to make yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. um, was very helpful. He he points out in that the breaking the social media prism that our identities are reinforced not just by our friends but also by our opponents. Exactly, we dig deeper yes. into our holes. And if that's the case, if if social media is the ziggurat of our self worship in in a culture of expressive individualism. That's where I start to question, is it wise for Christians to inhabit these spaces frequently? Yes. If, if at all. Yeah. And if we do, we have to be very, very careful. So, so working in reverse from, from that, um, I would say in many ways that analogy 
while maybe not explaining everything that maybe scripture has to offer on the subject, does maybe get at like yeah. the most important idea yeah. of what scripture has to offer. Let me let me let me try to answer the question of how do we conduct ourselves okay, by for moving it. forward just a few hundred years. Okay, go for it. And maybe a few thousand years. In scripture, we see apostle the apostle Paul has a low level of timidity of both showing up to synagogues and to Greek pagan temples to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, or, or sites of Greek philosophy like the Areopagus. You know, he'll show up to those places to preach the gospel. But at the same time, he encourages many believers to consider avoiding meat sacrifice to idols in order to avoid the appearance of evil and to bolster their younger or, or less mature, weaker brothers so to speak. And so I do think there is probably a place and a point for engagement in social media. But I think that that space has to be handled very carefully and with much trepidation Mm -hmm. and singularity of purpose. Yes. Paul does not seem to be there in order to go talk about, I don't know, the local politics of the day. He's not there to go, you know, vent his spleen. Uh, He's not there to go, you know, harass somebody who has... uh, a bad haircut. Um, right. What are other <laughs> poor uses of social media can we think of off the top of it? He has a very, very focused purpose, and that purpose is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who desperately need to hear it. Mm-hmm. And his life backs that up. But unfortunately, I think many believers, and this is, this is another point where we would agree full-heartedly, many believers don't go into that space with that singularity of focus no absolutely not i don't even go to that space with that singularity <laughs> focus um we you know we can go there for our uh, narcissism or to show out our workouts or gripe or complain we, we go there for a lot of things other than only talking about jesus and so i i do think there's maybe some wisdom in that that we have to be focused in a way that our culture is not focused right but for many of us it's, it is just a space where there's a lot of noise And where I would be maybe cautious is unless you have some sort of pre-built authority uh, outside that space, if you were trying to build that authority within that space, uh, the sphere of social media, I think you're building it on on sand, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul has other things going for him. He has a workable ministry already apart from showing up to Greek temples. Yeah. If he could not show up to a Greek temple it would not ruin his day. Right. right. He would be able to find other ways to preach the gospel. He's planted churches. He's you know, written books of the Bible, which, you know, yeah. granted none of us have done. But, yeah. you know, so am I bothered by like Tim Keller having, you know, an intern run a social media account or, or whoever is maybe as a professional, maybe well, he does I, it himself. I mean, I, I think, know. I think at the, I think actually recently he has taken control of it again since he, since having uh, cancer, he's had a little bit more personal kind more, of experience, yeah. more personal time, and he he has been much more active personally on it. Yeah, uh, here recently, yeah. I'm I'm not as bothered by that, but most of us, yeah. most of us do not handle ourselves responsibly, and I put myself in that number. Uh, we do not handle ourselves responsibly. We don't go into that space with the singularity of focus. We go in there for very you know, varied and, and self-centered reasons. We go there because we have bought lock, stock, and barrel 
the expressive individualism religion of our day, right. or as Christian Smith would call it, moral therapeutic deism. And occasionally, when we're in the right mood, we'll give a little lip service to Jesus, mm-hmm. or we'll preach some you know, distorted version of the gospel that is really about my issue of the moment. When, when most of us go into that space, we, we acknowledge that liturgies have a formational aspect, Mm-hmm. And uh, Bale talks about this in his book, right? Those social media spaces bend us. Yes. They distort our identities. Yes. Um, liturgies, like taking communion, like mm-hmm. opening, we, we stand at Redeemer where you and I both work. We stand when we read the Word of God because we're communicating something about what we believe about the authority of Scripture. But that shapes us, right? It shows us this is actually important important to us so it's that we will change our posture mm-hmm. when we read aloud the scriptures at length because it is important yeah i don't think many of us walk into the social media space cognizant of how those liturgies are shaping us and so we get bent yes now where i disagree with bail i think is because i don't think many of us can walk into that space without getting bent uh his plea to moderates to inhabit social media to re-inhabit social media in better ways strikes me as overly optimistic Mm -hmm. uh, and hubristic at some level that is something i will address when i get to that particular chapter in the the three run episode i'm gonna Mm -hmm. i'm gonna do on that book but let me let me address a couple of, of things real quick because i think there is a lot that you have said here like i said if my framework that i presented tries to take makes sense of the most amount of data scripture Mm -hmm. has on the subject. What you proposed is what makes sense of maybe the most important data where I too, and this is something that you and I talk about just in our free time. Often I am very much interested and keep a very close eye on the tech industry and the media industry and what is going on at the macro level. And so I am always looking at the big picture of what players are doing, what kind of in the sense of like nations and armies, um, and what they're preparing to do to gain more territory, more resources, et cetera. I've been paying extremely close attention to the developments with Facebook over the past couple of weeks from the Wall Street Journal expose and the the, the Senate hearings and, and all the stuff that's going on there. And so a lot of that probably colored a lot of what I said in that episode because I was trying to make sense of the big picture without maybe yeah. zoning in yeah. on like what is the most pertinent and important thing. Right. And maybe the reason why I didn't go there was because I think the first episode of my podcast tried to cover everything you just described about in terms that mediums are not value neutral. They Mm. ask us to do certain things to use them. And what they ask us to do reveals what they value. And we are reshaped into what they value. Which I I think is mostly angry, narcissistic people. Yeah, I think that you can say that social media does, as Bale does in his research, and we'll spend the next several episodes looking at, does bend us in the direction of being very polarized and very angry. He has a lot of research to back that up. But when it comes to liturgy, I think one of the aspects of teaching media literacy among Christians is understanding that media is not neutral. Right. And that media by the nature of the medium, does actually form us and shape us in some way. And so the solution, asking the question in a lot of ways, you know, should I use this media or engage in this medium or not, is not a bad question to ask, but maybe there's a better question. What is the best thing that could shape me? And we would say it would be Christian liturgy because we are are being, we are to be conformed to Christ and Christian liturgy 
correct Christian liturgy, so to speak, yeah. is going to do that. And we're not going to look to social media for our identity. We're going to look to Christ Ideally. and the identity that we yeah. have received in him. Is that, that's, uh, you know, Thomas Chalmers, um, the expulsive power of new affections. Partially. Right. right? Partially. It partially is. Media literacy and it, doing media literacy in the church is going to involve not just an engagement on what mediums do to us, but also how the church is supposed to shape us and mm-hmm. how Christian yeah. worship is to, supposed to shape us. One of the, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. One of the things that I've actually enjoyed most recently doing is listening to, from Reformed Theological Seminary, Legan Duncan's class on worship. And uh, that's a, I'd plug that, I guess, as a way to even think through like how liturgy affects us. Well, I'll, I'll plug this here too. Uh, you don't you don't know about this, so this is a live on air review. But a video Whoa. that I, a video that I taped on Tuesday with a, a guy on media ecology in the church and on liturgy and media formation in the church just finished and is uploading is uploading to YouTube now and will be ready. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I got I got uh, featured on that. Will I'll that be in the show notes? It will be. Episode. It will be in the show notes, yes. and I will promote it. Um, I've I, Austin, you have no idea how long I've waited to say that phrase you i know i i waited a very long time to give you a chance to say yeah, that I'm giddy's a schoolgirl here but i got to say show notes i think to wrap this up though i think if i were to go back and do that episode differently i would have really included a lot of what you just described with this a last with this last analogy because i do think it makes the most important sense of all of the framework scripture offers that i was trying to make sense of mm. and i would also have maybe made more explicit where I was coming from and that I did this episode for Christians who maybe not like you can't totally break away from social yeah. media. And I, and I think many won't opt out naturally. Mm-hmm. So like I, I, I fully recognize path I'm trying to walk right now is going to be a minority position. Chris Bale, you know, he talks about that. That's going to be a minority movement. You're not going to get a mass movement of people exodusing Facebook or anything like that anytime soon. And I think, I think from a general societal standpoint, he's right. Yeah. Where I think maybe we have something unique to offer is that maybe this is something the church leads out on. Could be. And that this is something where the church goes out of its way to create enclaves of people who are actively resisting in the midst of this broader cultural right. reality. The challenge is going to be not whether or not people should or use should or shouldn't use social media. I think the better question to ask is what using our sanctified imagination, what can we come up with to replace it that's better mm-hmm. and more fulfilling? Right. And right. I think we in the church have the unique opportunity to start not thinking in terms of negative, you know, what can we say to get people yeah. to log off Facebook, but what can we offer that's better in yeah. the real world? Yeah. What do we have unique to offer? And I think the church you know, is able to do that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, I think there's a myriad of examples that one could give. But close involvement with community, being involved. If there's small groups at your church, be involved in the small groups so that you have near friends mm-hmm. uh, who are also believers. Is going to get you a greater depth of personal care, relationship, and community. That's also going to hold you to some standard mm-hmm. than existing on social media would. Um, I have a personal bugaboo. Um, it drives me up the wall when people will post something that's wrong in their life without ever once contacting a pastor. That's good. That's really good. If something goes wrong with your life, contact a pastor. Just someone. Yeah. I mean, you know, route it up the chain. A deacon, if you know him, an elder, uh, staff, church staff member, tell them you're in the hospital. Tell them you just had a baby. Tell them that you were in a car wreck. Don't wait for them to find out on Facebook. 
because they may not be there, one. Yeah. But two, you're saying something about what you believe about the church in that moment. Exactly. That the church is not actually here for these things. Exactly. And it makes it very hard for us to respond well or in a timely manner if we are held to the vagaries of you know Facebook's timeline or whether or not an algorithm decides to serve that to us. Yeah. Give somebody a call. Yeah. Social media is one of many technologies that have existed and will exist that does change the way we think about God and the way we think about our neighbor. And that's what this podcast is really all about, is trying to help make sense of how these media and technological forces have changed the way we're supposed to think about God and changed the way we think about one another. The next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell will release on Monday, November 1st. Because this episode wasn't planned, I'm going to need another week to finish out the first of three episodes covering Breaking the Social Media Prism by Chris Bale. I recently wrote a review for the book and had it published for Faith Tech, a Christian nonprofit group seeking to bridge the divide between faith and technology. And so if you're on the fence about whether or not you should pick up a copy for yourself, I'll put that review in the show notes and you can check it out for more info about the book. This was the first time I've ever been published and it was a great experience to be able to write this review. But as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I have an exciting announcement about Breaking the Digital Spell, and that announcement is simply this. You can now buy me a coffee and keep the podcast an ad-free experience. Buy Me a Coffee is an alternative to Patreon where you can leave one-time tips without creating an account and provide recurring monthly support. And for those who support the podcast with a $5 a month membership, you'll get access to exclusive content including bonus episodes of Breaking the Digital Spell. In fact, the first bonus episode for members is available today. You can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash digital spell and become a member of the podcast and receive an episode on how Instagram's plans to combat its negative impact on teen mental health through content warnings and parental controls isn't really going to make that much of a difference. If that kind of content interests you, please consider supporting the podcast so I don't have to turn to Squarespace or Raycon or NordVPN to keep the show afloat. Breaking the Digital Spell is produced by me, Austin Gravely, with production assistance from Andrew Akins. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, which helps promote the podcast and get it exposed. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and now on Instagram and YouTube. All of the episodes of Breaking the Digital Spell released so far and all future episodes of the podcast are now going to be available on YouTube going forward for those who like to listen to podcasts on YouTube. And if you have any questions about anything I've said or you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can follow me on Twitter at gravely underscore Austin or send an email to breakingthedigitalspell at gmail.com. My name is Austin, and together we are breaking the digital spell. Mm-hmm.